0: Hi, everybody, and welcome to How Music Charts, the podcast where we explore the dance between interpreting data and making creative decisions in the music business every day. I'm your co-host, Jason, and you'll hear from our co-host, Rutger, very, very soon. This podcast is owned and operated by Chartmetric, a music data company that connects numbers to narratives to help professionals leverage the power of music. Any opinions or views expressed by our guests or the co-hosts on this podcast are his or hers alone, and do not in any way constitute the opinions or views of any company he or she works for. To preserve a tone of earnest dialogue and protect our guests, we will refrain from Using names of any kind, personal, company, or otherwise, unless our guests have granted us explicit permission to do so. Hi, everyone. Before we get into this episode today, we first want to introduce a special third co-host, Chart Metrics Chief Commercial Officer and Gentleman Extraordinaire, Chaz Jenkins. In the flash, joining us from Southern England near Brighton. How are you, Chaz? Very good, thank you. yourselves. It's feeling it's looking a bit uh, British outside, actually, a little overcast here in New York. It's pretty much the same here, actually, in England. So, yeah, I hope you're enjoying our weather. (laughs) All right. So uh, now that we've got everyone here on board, I want to talk about our guests. So at How Music Charts, we try to showcase those who are at the burning edge of music and data, using numbers to reveal and explain the passion that underlies the music that we all know and love. And what better person to embody that than today's guest, Will Page. Will is an economist a DJ, and most importantly, the biggest supporter of Tyne Castle Park's Heart of Midlothian Football Club, hashtag Boys and Maroon, a graduate of Scotland's University of Strathclyde and University of Edinburgh. He began his career as an economist with the government of Scotland while moonlighting as a music journalist for the straight No Chaser magazine. Soon thereafter, he became the chief economist for the United Kingdom's largest collection society, PRS for Music. After that, he assumed the same title for Stockholm-based streaming platform, Spotify. Currently, Will is now a fellow at the Royal Society of Arts in London, a visiting fellow at the London School of Economics and a non-executive director at music licensing company Soundvault. And what little spare time he has, he is busy at work on his upcoming book, Pivot, which is about digital transformation. What we can only assume the economics behind it. So without further ado, let's welcome to the How Music Charts podcast, Will Page. Thank you. Thanks very much. Great to be here. Will, I, I wanted to start real quick, if you'll have it, to talk about some of your DJing. Um, there's a million places you could have gone as an economist, and you, you chose music. And I noticed on Mixcloud, searching back to 2007, you've got seven hour-long DJ mixes under the name Will Page. Uh, could you talk to us a little bit about that and, and how you came to DJing?
1: Sure. It came really from a lyric by a hip-hop band called the Jungle Brothers. They had an album called Done by the Forces of Nature, released around about 1990, 91, I think. Uh And I remember as a young kid hearing that record, and inside that record was a song um, which had a lyric in it. And I just remember hearing that lyric and thinking, that's what I want to do. I want to be a DJ. And the lyric said, it's about getting the music across. It's about getting the message across. It's about getting it across without crossing over. And it was that line, that getting the message across without crossing over, it just resonated for me. And it's just, I really believe the music that you hear when you're going through puberty is the music that stays with you for the rest of your life, when that Uh lyric landed around that time. And I never forget, the purpose of a DJ is how do you get music across without diluting its integrity? It really Uh matters. How can you get a dance floor of many different ages, many different walks of life, dancing to, let's say, high life music from Ghana, which I've been championing for years, without diluting the integrity of high life music from Ghana and putting some Western beat behind it. Yeah. So that's kind of like, the root of being a DJ was in that lyric. And, you know, I did mixtapes, you know, graduating up onto Mixcloud, still the same principle. And if you look at, you know, the mix that went up around the time I met you guys was Full Tilt Boogie, which is now notched up 32,000. Yeah, I'd be Erica Badu. I'm really proud of that. Um, <laughs> yeah. But there, it's like I realised there was this phenomenal music scene in Miami. Most people have forgotten about around about '77 to '79. Um, people like Jimmy Bohorn, Casey and the Sunshine Band. This is the birth of house music as we know it. And how do I get that across without crossing over, without diluting the integrity of what Casey and the Sunshine Band did, without diluting what Peter Brown did? You know. Just a very quick story about Peter Brown. Do you want to dance with me? You know, there's a story about how disco died. I think it was in Chicago in a baseball field. This guy had this prank where he blew up lots of disco records, and that was the death of disco. Mm -hmm. And people say they repackaged it and they called it Madonna. (laughs) So when you discover Peter Brown's record, you know, Do You Want to Dance With Me?, then you realize he wrote Material Girl for Madonna. So he was part of disco before it died, Mm -hmm. then went on to write hits for Madonna, and... As a DJ, to see 32,000 people engage in that mix, learn about disco, learn about the role Miami played in modern-day music, and then learn about where it went next. You know, mm-hmm. nothing gives you more satisfaction than getting the message across without crossing over. Disco mm-hmm. died, but the songwriters moved on to write for Madonna, and disco came alive again. We just didn't call it disco anymore. Yeah. So, yeah, there's been big achievements and credit to Mixcloud, London-based tech company. Definitely encourage Chartmetric to engage with those guys, yeah. scaling up fast, Um uh, you know, they just give people like ourselves a voice and they do licensing. Very important. They do the yeah. licensing. They don't sit on the DMC Safe Harbor. They're one of the very first to do proper live stream licensing, a big topic we can get into later as well. So, For sure. you know, Mixcloud makes what I love doing scalable. Do what you love, love what you do. Quote Jesse Jeff. Uh,
0: <laughs> and the mix that you mentioned, Full Tilt Boogie 2018, because you do one every year, it looks like uh, it has over 1,200 likes and 200 reshares, may I add. There's a really strong undercurrent of soldiers go going and funk. And, and I also noticed that a couple of years ago, you uh, helped produce a documentary, Black Stars of High Life, which, like you mentioned, highlighted the High Life music from Ghana. Mm. Um, and I, I really just I just love that about uh, what you do is you really keep the, the passion of music in your life alive while you do all these really cool things. Uh, you know, wearing a suit and tie as well.
1: Well, if you wear a suit in a tie in the music industry, people either think you've got a job interview or you're going to court, which doesn't bode <laughs> well for the music business. The documentary well, <laughs> is a culmination of, in Scotland, you speak to people on public transport. doesn't happen in London. But my first weekend in London in 2006, a Rastafarian stepped on the top deck of the bus and I started talking to him. Mm-hmm. I said, what you got in your flight case there? He said, it's a bass. So what do you play? He said, roots reggae. I asked him about his influences. He said, Fela Kuti and talked about these West African artists. Yeah. And, you know, a Scotsman partnered up with a Togolese Rastafarian and formed a nightclub called the Spot to champion Ghanaian music in London mm-hmm. from 2007 onwards. We ran it in passing clouds, which tragically closed down because that's what's happening to a lot of music venues in the city right now. Yeah. Um, but yeah, at one point we had 600 people in the door before 9pm. We had queues around a block. We had... 14 piece west african band playing on stage we had first year university students dancing along with people in their 60s to a band called osibisa who had a hit called sunshine day way way back in the day and you're thinking back to what the jungle brothers taught me all those years ago i'm getting the message across but i'm not crossing over everybody's feeling this new rhythm and the documentary is a great way of capturing that and celebrating it and uh, it's great to learn that you know music museums in West Africa are embedding that YouTube video into their their kind of entrance to the museum so people can learn it. It's only 25 minutes long. So Mm. a great way to educate people about a rhythm which affects so much of what we do. So when you when you hear James Brown uh, and he's using that sort of give it to me or this call the response. He's reflecting his tribe from Ghana. Yeah all these Ghanaian Mm. musicians we're trying to copy James Brown. So you just had this crazy feedback effect that nobody yeah. was aware of. And that's the sort of thing I wanted to bring out in a documentary is you'll understand what you're getting down to. Yeah.
0: Your passion for music, it really kind of when I was looking over some of the work you've done during the course of your career, it, it kind of just made me think of you as like, yeah, this double agent lifestyle, for example, like you were a, a student tie government man when you first uh, graduated from university and, you were working for the Scottish government um, as a, an economist, and it looks like you were also moonlighting as a as a with a wild music journalist lifestyle with Straight Up no Chaser magazine. Um, I was curious, kind of what kind of a typical day was it was like for you back in the early two thousands, and how you spent your hours, and and what that was like balancing those two kind of forces in your life. Yeah, my sister called me Batman in terms of just by day, like you say, charcoal black suit,
1: blue shirt, red tie doing some of the most tedious government economic work you can imagine. And then by yeah. night, the kind of patch that I carved out for Straight No Chaser was Philadelphia hip-hop. Very awesome. interesting. So from a bedroom in Edinburgh, Scotland, I was covering all of these amazing hip-hop artists in Philadelphia and giving them profile that they couldn't get in their own city. That was a surreal thing. It's like, I was so honoured to be interviewing all these people from Bahamadia to Questlove. And they're like, well, no one else is interviewing us. So, mm-hmm. so being able to you know profile what was happening in the city... Um, And, yeah, it was interesting juggling things around. But all that time, I was always trying to merge the two passions. All that time, I was always saying, why is there no economist in the music industry? I couldn't find one. And I wanted to be the first. And when I do workshops for, you know, teaching kids or students economics, something I'm passionate about, I always say, create your job description. Don't wait for your job description. So what I got busy doing was creating a job description of what an economist could do to a business, which back then was staring into the abyss. I mean, there was no hope, no future. Yeah. Piracy was rampant. There was nothing filling the gap. And, you know, it was being run by lawyers who believed in suing the consumer or disconnecting the consumer from the Internet. And somebody had to raise their hand and say, if you disconnect a consumer from the Internet, you ain't going to grow your digital revenues. Mm. How can you say that, Will? Well, they're not going to be on the Internet, are they? Yeah, you know, it's like blatantly obvious contradictions in what the music industry was doing to try and combat piracy. And I just wanted to take a different route. Uh, my belief was to build something that was better than piracy and that people would come across. They're not stealing because they want to steal. They're stealing because it's easier than buying. Make it easier right. to access music and they'll stop stealing. And that was a, a key way in which I was able to finally get a foot in the door and take up the role of the chief economist of the PRS.
0: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So I really wanted to help listeners maybe try to better understand what economists do. Um, I, I uncovered a quote that you had in a Think Entertainment talk back in uh, 2011. Uh, you said, "Economics for me is not about math. It's not about funny graphs. It's about abstraction. Can mm-hmm. You look at a problem differently and therefore come out with a better solution." I think you've already started to talk about it a little bit already, but you know, how do you apply that to the work that you do today in the music industry, and and how can others do the same?
1: Yeah, that's a real lesson from my father, who was an economist as well, or taught economics at school, mm. um, along with maths and other subjects. And uh, yeah, he always stressed, it's, it's common sense made complicated, but it's just a different way of approaching problems. You know, we have a drought. Is that because we've run out of water? Or is it because we priced water too cheaply? Different way of thinking about the problem. You know, just pivoting on a very simple observation there. Um <laughs> to draw like a story from my childhood, I remember him teaching me what economics was for the very first time. He said, uh, we were at a beach and he said, okay, if you want to learn what economics is? Let's imagine you're the prime minister. And I'm going to tell you that lots of kids drowned in British beaches last year. And you're going to walk out of number 10 Downing street, which is where the prime minister resides, mm-hmm. stare the parents in the face, the grieving parents, stare the politicians You know, tackle the press who desperately wanted to tear you up into pieces and tell them what you're going to do. And I said, well, I want to make swimming compulsory because it's obvious, right? Kids are drowning. Let's teach them all to swim and they won't drown. Problem solved. Mm -hmm. And he said, that's a political response. Let's do some economics. What do we know about what happened? Dad, kids drowned. That makes me sad. Where were they? They were at the beach, Dad. Where were they in the beach? They were in the water, Dad, swimming. What does that tell you about their ability to swim or not? That means they could swim, Dad. Why? Because kids who can't swim don't go into water. Mm -hmm. And the penny dropped. If I make swimming compulsory, more kids can swim, which means more kids will go into water, which means we will be having more fatalities of kids drowning than we had previously. My best solution would have made the problem worse. So what's the solution, Dad? Well, information or regulation? Let's tell the kids where the safe bridges are. Let's tell... um, Let's use a flag symbol to tell them when they can and can't go into water. Let's have lifeguards in place. But polluting the beaches with more kids in the water is not the solution to this particular problem. And I always loved that story of just, I really wanted to solve the problem. I want to impress my dad and say, let's stop kids drowning in water. This is a tragedy. But my solution, I meant well, would have made the problem worse. Thanks. It may be a hop, skip, and jump to go from that to music piracy. But if you look (laughs) at the first 10 years of Napster, what did we do? Did we make the problem better or did we make the problem worse? And that's where I had a belief that economics really had a role in this business. Uh, It's going to upset a lot of people. There'd be a lot of inconvenient truths to stomach, but I really believed that that
0: angle of being able to take a different solution to a different problem had a role to play. So the way you approach really prickly topics, I feel like was really on the spotlight went for this. uh, One of these pieces that you did recently for Billboard is a two page spread uh, Mm -hmm. back in uh, May of this year, just last month, uh, entitled Peak Streaming, Are We There Yet? Um, Mm -hmm. For those who haven't read it yet, it's Will uh, talking about some of the insights he was kind of fleshing out from the uh, IFPI Global Music Report uh, that got released in 2019. Uh, Will, do you want to talk about about that a little bit and maybe uh, pick out some of the interesting points or that you want to maybe discuss? Yeah, it is, I,
1: I, I bite on debates in this business and across media, across policymaking, where people come to conclusions without thinking through the problem. Maybe that's what my dad taught me. It was just peak streaming. You know, every man, woman, cat, dog, and pet hamster in Sweden's got a Spotify account, so it has to stop growing. Peak streaming. This good thing can't keep on going forever. Peak streaming, big numbers grow at slower rates. Okay, there's a lot of assumptions there. We kind of, we've put the full stop before you even got to the first comma. I think this sentence needs to go on for a little longer. So what I wanted to do is really get to grips with this 240-page IFPI global music report. I read it, so you didn't have to. Don't recommend <laughs> that you do. Um, I prefer going to the dentist and reading that thing again. But still... <laughs> Digested the whole thing and then tried to tease out trends or observations that nobody else would have seen. For example, in the previous year, you had growth of 9.7%, I think, of the global business. We're talking about decimal points here. This year, we see growth of just north of 8%, and everybody has a knee jerk reaction slow down, this is it, the party's coming to a halt. You know, that number was bigger, this number is slower, therefore put the lights out, last one to leave the house, lock the door, please. I was like, well, there's some issues there. You know, one of them, which I covered in the report, was the presence of China. And the the IFPI worked out how to measure China in 2018. They didn't know how to measure the Chinese music industry in 2017. And as a result, you had a huge contribution to growth. Mm -hmm. Take China out. And there wasn't really much of a slowdown in the global business. So that's a really, really important lesson, regardless what profession you and your listeners are in. It's just... The data set, you have to look at what happened in point A and what happened in point B and control for the distortion between, like a fund manager. How did your fund perform against the market? Well, my fund started at period one. We're going to stop the clock in period five. And look, I'm up 20% of the markets up 10. Are we removing the funds that expired in between period one and period five? Maybe that would help make a truer comparison of what the market is. And things like that are really, really important in finance and equally, are really important in understanding the music industry. So, yeah, from a headline of there's a slowdown happening, the business is going to grind to a halt to there's not much of a slowdown. And there's lots of reasons why we can be, you know, positive about future growth.
0: Yeah. Well, one of the things that uh, you noted was the U.S., uh, which has been the number one recorded music market for some time now, went from 26 to 36 percent of the global music revenue share. Mm-hmm. Um, what does, you talked a little bit, and I was curious what your other thoughts were about what does that mean for the currency of the industry and, and maybe the future of the global market and what are some of its repercussions? Could you elaborate maybe a little bit on that? Sure,
1: sure, let's kick it. So in, in this, this is a, a great area for your listeners to think about because you go from a simple observation about the music industry, and again, a thesis of the whole book is music matters because it got there first. And I want to stress that every other industry in the world is looking over their shoulder and the work that I'm doing, the amazing work that Chartmetric is doing, a really amazing work mean, credit to your team and the way that you're presenting the work so succinctly as well. Um, And saying, what can I learn from this business? You guys got there first, I'm next. So here's an observation. The business has become more global. There's more smartphones in the world than there ever were CD players. And it's become a whole lot more bigger. Okay, get that point. And it's become more American. Wait. You're like, that wasn't supposed to happen. Globalization and economics suggest that poor countries catch up with rich ones. Mm. But with free movement of capital and labor in the globalization debate, we know that the rich ones often break away from the poor ones and the gap widens. Mm. Is that what we're seeing here? Now, I'll tackle this a couple of ways. Firstly, some kind of tedious remarks, which is the exchange rate, the rising strength of the dollar. We're measuring the global business and dollar just mathematics would suggest that would help america take up a bigger share of the business mm-hmm. as you'd appreciate all the other neighboring currencies around you and um, the role of japan is important what was way back in 2011-12 the second biggest country in the world almost on a par with america hasn't really grown since it's stagnated so america's ripped away in front and japan's to start its car and get the ignition to work. Mm. So that's a contribution. But I think that what, un- what is underlying that amazing observation of a business becoming more global, more bigger, and more American, is globalization within countries. You know, hear me out. Uh, America is a very globalized market. If you think about Latinos living in America, people from Southeast Asia living in America, people from Africa living in America, all engaging in streaming, all engaging in repertoire from their whole country. What you've got is the biggest market, is also the most globalised market, which mm. then makes it best able to benefit from globalisation. Mm. Now, this is a crapshoot. If I'm wrong, I have to throw my hands up. But I think it's the deep topic, which is when we think about globalisation, it's my country against yours. No, it's how globalised are we within each other's countries? Not. My country versus yours is what's inside my country versus what's inside yours. Mm -hmm. I think that could be a factor to play as well, which is you have all of these cultures in this big melting pot of the United States all being able to engage in the music they love through streaming. And I think that's a big factor. I know that, just to top that answer off for you there, I know that when I went to Singapore, the number one genre Spotify works with in the Singapore office across Asia and Australasia is K-pop. Spotify was not in Korea. Think Mm -hmm. about that. Globalization is not John's Island and Jane's Island. We we'll give that textbook crap up. We're onto something much bigger here.
0: Mm-hmm. Do you find that uh, India and China, because that's another uh, point you touched on uh, in the report, uh, do you see their, I mean, obviously, they're they're the two biggest countries in the world by population. But do you see their uh, influence affecting the music market in the next, let's say, five years or so to challenge the U.S.
1: Yes, I mean, I'll give you a a few points on here, one which is specific to chart metric, which is if you measured the global streaming charts by volume, that is, forget the per stream calculation, forget the payments through to artists, just how many clicks did you get? I guarantee the number one song every week on global chart would be Indian and it'd all be driven by YouTube. The numbers matter. Um, Within a year of YouTube really exploding in India as data costs fell. Uh, they announced well over 240 million users of music on their platform. 240 million. That was more than 12 years of blood, sweat, and tears at Spotify, and that was in 78 countries. So yeah. one country, one year, versus 12 years in 78 countries, and they got more. So the numbers really count. So I think the, the potential for India is really going to be a YouTube-driven phenomena and uh, where they take that. Um Over and above what anyone else would tell you about emerging market potential, um, a couple of other remarks, um, one on India and one on China. On India, I I love telling this story of just the sheer scope for streaming to explode there. When we were launching in India, we had one person on the ground. I think Google employs around about 20,000 people in India. We employed one. And I asked that one person who previously worked for Google how many students were in India. Because we've got student pricing, we've got student brands, we have student marketing. Now, how many students are in India? Very reasonable question for a chief economist to ask. And his answer went, that's a very good question. Very, very good question. The answer is either 100 million or 200 million. I just, <laughs> discrepancy there. I actually contacted a colleague at in the Indian government, an economist in the Indian government. He said, your friend's absolutely right. In our country, you can be plus or minus 100 million and still keep your job. <laughs> so... Very few places on planet Earth could give you an answer like that to that question. Um, and that's, you run with it. And um, flipping over to China, what I definitely encourage your audience to think about with the potential in China, and this is topical just now, this is our debate about the Apple tax and use of the App Store here in Europe, is just the speed to which you can pay for a service in China. So when I was there two, three years ago, two years ago, and I met the chief executive of Tencent before we both took the stage. And um, I asked, like, you seem to have the whole ecosystem stitched up here from payments, to messaging, to communication, to promotion, to music, to streaming, to tipping, to tickets, the whole thing, you know, full stack. How quick can you engage? He said, pull out your phone and put your stopwatch on. Sure, he said, go. And he pulled out his phone just so you understand when the stopwatch starts, the hand movement starts, went to his smartphone and within 32 seconds had got two emails in his inbox saying, you're now a subscriber to Tencent Music Service. Hmm. And I said, you're 32 seconds from 900 million subscribers. Hmm. Now, that's not gonna happen anytime soon, that's probably, but the point being, Find me a streaming service in the West that takes 32 seconds to subscribe to. You've got to get your credit card out, at least in Britain, you've got to find your last three numbers. You have to click a verification email which comes through two minutes later. Mm -hmm. It's relatively speaking a clunky process. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. In China, 32 seconds and you're onboarded and good to go. So, you know, the size of the student population in India, I don't think there's enough conversation there. And the speed of onboarding in China, I don't think there's enough conversation there when you're trying to gauge where these two countries could be in five, 10 years time.
0: Yeah. Uh, Another interesting point, switching our focus from India and China to the Nordics, you bring up a uh, possible retirement plan for streaming uh, Mm. for Nordic senior citizens because uh, of the saturation point that the market there has reached because they took to Spotify and other streaming platforms just so quickly uh, when it first became a thing. Generally speaking, do you see that kind of adaptation of technology limited to those who, let's say, grew up with it only, or do you do you actually see maybe an older population, maybe didn't have it when they were in their you know teens or twenties, and actually adopting it at, at later stages of their life?
1: Supply creates
0: demand, right? Every man, woman, and their dog
1: thinks demand creates supply, but you got to flip it on its head. How did you build America? You supply the train lines, then people demand the houses. So when people say or oh, the older demographic are not engaging in music well what have you supplied to make them engage all your marketing campaigns are aimed at the hipsters and um, it's an echo chamber if you look at the, the staff within the streaming companies and the audience one speaks to the other but there is this huge audience out there with time on their hands with disposable income and nobody's talking to them so mm. I would say that the 60-plus population in both those Nordic countries cited in the article, Norway and Sweden, has even more addressable market opportunity than all other age groups, including children, combined. Combined. Wow. But nobody's talking to them. So when people are panicking about when does the party grind to a halt, it's like your party hasn't even started. You just need to start speaking to your fans. Mm. Um, and that, that just involves a supply-side shift or a mindset change in terms of what's actually being marketed. I really do believe that. um, Maybe you're seeing some evidence there in terms of Amazon seem to be having a great run with country music during the lockdown period. It's a bit of a flippant remark to throw into this deep conversation, but they're talking to an audience that many of the incumbent streaming services weren't talking to. And that audience is listening. Again, supply changes demand, not demand changes supply.
0: You also mentioned at the end of this piece, uh, attention economics, which certainly, you know, with social media um, has become more and more of a buzzword. Do you see with music, you know, competing now with video games and with, uh, you know, movie streaming platforms, do you see music itself as an industry still being more of a siloed form of entertainment? Or do you find that maybe there's more of a future in drawing revenue from, you know, partnerships with uh, some of these other industries?
1: I think that this. I mean, this question takes us into the COVID nineteen crisis, which is a hard topic for for me personally to talk about. I've suffered loss in the past two months because of it closely as well. Oh. But I think with the crisis that we're we're dealing with, what you've seen is an acceleration of things that were happening already. And one thing that was clearly happening before the crisis was gaming was on a roll. Mm. And what the COVID-19 crisis has given is the black swan moment for computer games. The numbers are simply jaw-dropping. Let's kick you a few. And um, in the month of March, the gaming industry globally did $10.4 billion in turnover. That's more than global page streaming did in the entire calendar year of 2019. One month, one year. Two, IFPI is there celebrating that we finally got 341 million subscribers to music services, 341 million since Rhapsody launched in 2002. Well, congratulations, but Fortnite's got 350 million users and they went around two years ago. Mm -hmm. Um, Three, let's get right into attention, Animal Crossing. The average dwell time on a streaming service, Apple, Spotify, Deezer, whatever, is probably around about one hour 40 minutes per day, one hour 40, one hour 50, in that range. Um, And it's been broadly constant because of lifestyles around that range ever since they got going. The average dwell time, that is duration spent playing Animal Crossing by all of its participants, the mean was nine hours. That's a lot of attention. A lot of attention, and where the attention goes, the money follows. Mm -hmm. So gaming has this black swan moment, And I think that creates a challenge because it can cancel out or screen out distractions elsewhere. Uh, what I like to think about, and indeed it's a huge part of the book, is we don't need to think about attention. We need to think about the contestability of attention. Mm-hmm. When Reed Hastings from Netflix said, Sleep is my biggest competitor, what is he saying? When I've got Jason watching Netflix, I know he can't do anything else. He's binge watching How They See Us, or he's binge watching some weird documentary about people with tigers, whatever. Mm-hmm. He's zeroed in on Netflix, which means music loses, computer games lose. Other forms of television lose, everybody else loses. Mm-hmm. So one person's gain is another one's pain. So we need to think about that. So, you know, music can be complementary to lots of things. Um, I remember as a kid being told by the founder of Enzyme Records that music works because you can drink to it, you can dance to it and you can shag to it. And I was too young, <laughs> so I to ask my mom and dad what the third word meant, but it's a complementary good. And there's a lot of people who still to this day enjoy drinking, dancing and shagging post lockdown. I'm sure that will continue. But the point there is to think about can music complement a surge in gaming or is it going to be in competition? And I don't know whether Chartmetrics spent much time looking at the Travis Scott example, but what was clear to me there was a huge spike in streaming during the event. And then it it sort of fell back to a higher plateau after the event. Travis Scott today is streaming bigger numbers post-Fortnite Experiment than he was doing previously. So this was not just a sugar high experience. He was able to engage, immerse himself in the attention that games are winning and come out better off for it. That's fascinating for me. That's really fascinating. If I can just put Travis Scott at one end of the spectrum there, you can visualize it on your podcast Mm -hmm. and look at the other end. There's a bunch of artists who have done big sync deals for gaming. Um, Sophie Tucker's best friend, one of my favorite bands, you know, how many kids set up their FIFA 2018 teams to that song? Millions, <laughs> tens of millions, right? Great game. But did it affect her streaming numbers? Mm. Not really. So there seems to be this weird world of, yes, attention is absolutely the first fork in the road you've got to tackle when you're navigating disruption, yes, the gaming industry is winning you with it, but I'm seeing very different strategies for music as to A, I'm oblivious to it, B, I'm going to ignore or dismiss it, C, I might do a sync deal here or there and maybe something happens, or D, Travis Scott, Fortnite, that's the future. You know, That's that's where it's going to end. And then you, wrapping up, you only have to look at the jobs board of gaming companies to work out where they're going. There are no secrets in tech, just look at who they're hiring, and they're hiring music industry execs fast. So... Mm. They're moving into our patch, as opposed to we're moving into theirs. So yeah, a great one, a great opportunity
0: for Chartmetric. Yeah, it sounds like it. So uh, that's also another great kind of look at another piece that you did uh, entitled is, "Is the Music Copyright Business Worth More Than Ever?" And this was also for Billboard. This was a couple months earlier, actually in February, and you talk about. Uh, the music copyright business, which not only includes what we've been talking about the recorded uh, music industry but also publishing revenue for songwriters, performance royalties from p- performances of compositions, mechanical royalties from albums. And you noted how from 2015 to 2018, this entire kind of pie grew from 1 billion to 2.5 billion in just three years, and so. Um, I was wondering if you could uh, talk to us about uh, this concept, because a lot of times when we reference a lot of these reports, it's just about the recorded side. And uh, you really made an awesome point about looking at the bigger picture. And I just wanted to hear some of your thoughts on that.
1: Absolutely. It, it, It makes my blood boil, to use that old Scottish expression, when people say, you know, what was Spotify's impact on Universal's record business? Okay, but Spotify pay universal publishing too. And I've seen Wall Street analysts look aghast when I pointed that out to them. Like, what do you mean? Yeah, it's this is how the music industry works. It starts with a song. That song will be published and assigned to a collecting society. That song will be recorded by an artist who may or may not be the same person. The artist will sign that recording to a record label, and that record label will deliver a file to a streaming service, which is consumed by you, the consumer. And just to know that there's these three pieces of the puzzle, there is the record label side, which everyone talks about. There is the collecting study side, which very few people talk about. And then there's the publisher side of direct to, direct licensing, sync licensing, TV, films, adverts, grand rights for theater performances as well, which very few people even consider. It's all copyright. Mm. Forgive me if I got this one wrong, but it all has that C with a circle around it and it all matters. And if you are a singer and a songwriter, if you are a composer and a performing artist, it all matters to you. So I think I first did that in 2013, 2014. It's five years of doing that work. And um, just it's a real snakes and ladders exercise in sort of mathematics to put the whole thing together. But I just, I'm addicted to adding things up, Jason. And I just wanted to get a figure there, which is, it would be embarrassing if somebody said to you, what's the music copyright business worth? And you shrugged your shoulders and said, I don't know. But now we know. And what was great about that recent piece of work, and I really wanna thank Hannah Carp at Billboard Magazine, who I really believe in as a leader, as an editor, somebody wants to take that publication in a much, much more deeper direction of understanding what's going on around us. was to get a figure put together which was robust, the most accurate one I've ever calculated in that whole exercise. But also, being north of $30 billion is probably, arguably, in fact, I would say definitely higher than it's ever been in history. Mm. So I had this idea in my head of a headline called Past Its Peak, which most people sort of say, Chaz, is past its peak because, <laughs> well, sorry. Well, you get the point. So you know, people who are past their peak, right? So I wanted to have that as a headline, which is the business has finally past its peak. It's past a peak that we always thought we would never achieve. Once you put all three pieces together, now to wrap this up, this is the important thing for your audience, which is when you have those three pieces of jigsaw, labels, collecting sites, publishers, you see how the two components of the business, label artist sites, songwriting publisher site are moving in different directions. Labels and artists had a boom. They had a bust, and now they're seeing a recovery. Mm-hmm. Some our side just seemed to sort of trundle along with steady growth of 3%, 4 5%. There was no Napster moment in ASCAP or BMI. There's never been a year where a collecting study has said, we didn't achieve record revenues this year since Napster. That's crazy. Mm. So the side of the business that we talk about had this huge roller coaster ride. The side of the business that we didn't talk about just carried on growing and that's you know people need to know that they need to know what they're talking about they need to know how to add it up and that was a great honor to do that work for for Hannah Carp and the billboard team mm-hmm. Mm-hmm.
0: one of the amusing asides here was the, uh, the $9.99 per month subscription fee that mm-hmm. a lot of uh, West, Western DSPs subscribe to pun intended Um, And you noted that it was established in part by uh, Rhapsody back in 2002, which you've already mentioned, which in part took into account the cost of a blockbuster video rental card. Mm -hmm. I I still remember having one of those. I've
1: got the memo. I've got the memo.
0: (laughs) Do you see, you know, with inflation making that same monthly fee essentially cheaper for the company, do you see people's willingness to pay changing at all?
1: Yeah. So uh, firstly, I, I have to say I was doing cartwheels to finally get that in print because I've been trying to get that out there and understood, which was... Back in 2002, that was literally as far as the conversation went. You look at the incredible work that your analysts are doing at Chartmetric, you know, the dashboards you're building, the, the synthesizing of data that you're doing. All they did in 2002 was say, well, if it costs 9 to rent videos from Blockbuster, that's what it's going to cost to rent music from Rhapsody, <laughs> period. <laughs> conversation over, let's go to the bar. We have now decided the price of music. Now, how surreal that in June 2020 you are still asked to pay 9.99 for Deezer, Apple Music, Spotify, Amazon. There's some variation there, but it's still the headline price point, surreal. Now, where does price need to go? There's two arguments here. Um, Well, maybe there's a third. The third I'll do first, which is the price point matters. The reason why Steve Jobs said 99 cents, was not because of some economic model for 99 cents, it's the price that resonates with the customer. And I love that. I mean, in many ways, an anti-economist. Put down your models, apply some common sense. What would, what price point would a customer resonate with? And then if you say to somebody who doesn't understand streaming, yeah, it's 10 bucks a month. Okay. If you say it's 11 bucks and 46 cents, well, what am I missing here? It's too much detail. So price points matter more than a lot of people give them credit for. Mm. Secondly, you could argue that inflation has eroded the value of music, and I put that in the piece in terms of how much inflation would have chipped away at that value. It's interesting to think that you're getting more value for 10 bucks a month than you were getting for back in 2002. Rhapsody had 2 million songs in their service. Apple Music claims 60 million on theirs today. Mm-hmm. For economists listening, there is an interesting application of deflator there if you wanted to get technical. Mm-hmm. Um, but you could say, wait, not just as a service got better, but there's been inflation. So we need to raise price to capture service value plus also inflation value. The final argument is to think about there's eight billion on the people on this planet. Not many of them don't like music. Is it, could about any of them, you know, refuse to join a streaming service if the price wasn't right? And if you think about this for a second, if I take Mexico, um, the price for streaming in Mexico has been unchanged since streaming got going in 2013. Mexico has. Inflation, significant inflation, not out of control Argentina batshit crazy inflation, but significant inflation. Mm. So should we be panicking that we've frozen price or should we be celebrating the fact the Mexican music industry is doing better than ever before? And what could be happening is that with every year that passes, another segment of the Mexican population finds that they're willing to pay for a streaming service because their incomes have grown. So what I'm stressing here is you can fix one side of the axis and plot the other, or you can fix the other side of the axis and plot the other. It's a very good analytical point for your audience, which is that by freezing prices here and incomes growing there, I tip more buyers into my market by just freezing prices. Mm-hmm. So it's a two-sided debate. That's the important side. Nobody knows the right answer. What I can say is you know, countries where you'd be thinking that's crazy that you're forcing prices haven't slowed down in their growth. And that's an important consideration.
0: Mm. Looking forward now to, you know, where we're going as an industry, I wanted to also reference a Financial Times piece you were involved in uh, in March of this year by John Thornhill. It was entitled uh, How COVID-19 is Accelerating the Shift from Transport to Teleport. And I think it also loops in uh, the book that you're working on right now, Pivot. Mm -hmm. Uh, And you have a quote in this Financial Times piece. that says, uh, quote, kids today think that cars have voices and their parents think that's absurd. Ask yourself, who's right and who's wrong? In 10 years' time, those with that absurd notion will be buying or hiring cars themselves. Can you talk a little bit about what, what that meant when you said that? I'll go deeper. Uh, kids today get
1: upset, and mostly upset, when adults shout at Alexa. And what's happening there? What's happening there? That kid thinks that black cylinder thing in your kitchen's got emotions. Mommy, why are you shouting at Alexa? You know, this is the next generation and they don't know any difference. So yeah, find me a kid that doesn't think a car has a voice. We still think it's absurd as adults, but you know, in 10 years time, um, I'm not going to say initially buying cars, it's a lovely anecdote of father greets his son's 17th birthday and says, son you've turned 17, what do you want for your birthday? A car or an Uber account? And the son says an Uber account, why would I want a car? (laughs) You know, it's, it's just where this world is going I think it really highlights what I admire so much about Amazon as a company of just, you want to compete for five years, I'll compete for eight. You want to build for the future, I'm already there. Um, What I think, forgive me if I get the numbers wrong, but when they launched Alexa, they had two and a half thousand full-time staff working for four years on Alexa in complete secrecy and nobody inside the company knew about it. Now, if two people were working on a secret at Spotify, we're all going to know about but they had two and a half thousand full-time staff for four years working on a project and nobody inside the company knew what was happening. And that just makes you think, what are they working on now that we're gonna be talking about on a chart metric podcast in 2022? That's what makes it exciting. That article, I don't know if you remember, the well, one, credit to John Thornhill, I think possibly the best journalist there is in innovation and tech. Um, It's a real honor to finally be interviewed by him. Um, But two, the way he wrapped that article up was a William Gibson quote. Can you remember it at all?
0: No, I don't. Please remind us. So
1: William Gibson, I would imagine most of your audience will know the man who invented the term cyberspace, but he said, the future is already here. It's just not evenly distributed. That's just a wonderful way of trying to sort of work out where is this thing going. The future's already here. It's, you know, Hal Varian said to work out what the future is, just look at what rich people do and scale it. A really nice way of taking William Gibson and flowing it forward in much more simpler language. But what I would like to kind of, you know, land on you, um, Jason, is uh, the future's already here, but it's not evenly distributed. Well, do we need to change the future or do we need to change the distribution? I mean, you you want to go deep on where this world is going. I think that's a great way to take the William Gibson observation, and just tweak it slightly. Which is, what is the issue with the future? Is it the way we're going, or is the way it's currently being distributed is the problem? Mm-hmm.
0: And it sounds like this is something you're going to tackle in your upcoming book, Pivot, which should be coming out uh, in 2021. So, it says here that it's about digital transformation. Can you tell us more about it? And because it mentions that there's ten key principles to survival in any sector or industry, so not just music, which is really super interesting for us to see. Sure. Um, Music matters because it got there first, right?
1: That's why it matters. Um, We had a 20-year head start. We were the first to suffer and first to recover from disruption. And I think everybody else, individuals, organizations, not just media, institutions, even at the highest political level, are looking over their shoulder thinking, gee, man, we've got turbulence coming up. What can we learn from music? You know, you guys been there. You seem to come out the other end looking okay. What can I learn as I go into my turbulence? As the seatbelt sign goes on, and uh, that's what I wanted to do. My passion is teaching economics, and the book allowed me to do it at scale. I want to thank my agent, uh, Curtis Brown Associates, for making it possible to do it full time as well. And um, it's to get the sort of the transferable lessons from music's journey that everyone else can draw from and apply it to their lives. I'm thinking if you go back to the kind of the end of the first 10 years of disruption in music where people really had no hope about where this business was going. I remember a, a chap called Simon David Miller at EMI. And he, he said to the EMI board, and you have to remember EMI records back then, just like any other record label, was 85, percent CD sales. And he said, the best thing this record label could do is to stop selling CDs. What makes up 90% of our business is killing our business. And it's that type of gut reaction of just, if, if you know there's a problem and you turn a blind eye to it and you think it's going to go away, it only gets worse and worse. And that's what music spent 10 years doing. Then the second 10 years, we kind of swung over to a new world and managed to get better and better and better so if you think about the newspaper business just now well point one why do we even call newspapers for me they're a piece of glass that you press with your thumb uh two if you ever look at the physical distribution model the newspaper it is completely screwed you can't geo target you have to shift newspapers to every single town and city in the country otherwise you get no distribution at all mm. Um, and then three, just look at like the correlation between circulation and ad revenue. The fewer people are reading, the fewer the advertisers, fewer the advertisers, the less the quality of journalism, the less people read it and so on. That's been going on forever and yet they still ship newspapers. Could the best thing the newspaper industry do today is stop selling newspapers? You know, this problem's only going to get worse until you take a leap into a different world. And... That's what I see in so many other businesses uh, and government. The more and more I've been working on the book, the more I see the role for government in this book as well. It's just how to adapt to disruption. There's, there's got to be something you can learn from music's journey, and I want to teach you that something uh, across 200 pages.
0: Mm. Do you see, you kind of broke down 2000 to 2010 and then 2010 to 2020, from 2020 to 2030, uh, especially when it does come to music streaming, what, what do you see possibly happening in terms of disrupting that because I, at least for me, it still feels like it is the disruptor. So any kind of conjectures into what that looks like in the next decade?
1: I still find it surreal that for all the progress of music streaming, if you look at the conventional music streaming services, you still cannot communicate with your artist on the platform and you still cannot compensate your artist on the platform. Now, I know you could argue about I could use social media to make the communication, or you know I could buy merch to make the the compensation, but you know, literally, these huge platforms still can't accommodate a, that I can talk to my artist, and B, I can pay them. Um, and when you look at gaming um, and the way that they've managed to kind of crack that, uh, much more socially interactive, and compensation is much more dynamic if you look at the ability to monetize games that are in pre-production fascinating world you know pioneered by minecraft which is the biggest game in history started off being monetizable before they actually published the final product mm-hmm. and especially on platforms like valve you know that's one media format working out that there's not this whole period of jason and jovins goes off into the abyss for two years comes back with a final album and then hopefully gets some streams that mm-hmm. is I'm working on this album, and the more you back it, the better it's going to be when it gets finished.
0: Yeah.
1: Uh, I, I, this is future grazing, it's a crapshoot, it's a flippant remark, but I'm, I'm, I'm struggling to see why that has not happened in music. Right. For two reasons. One, you know, the direct link between artists and fans still seems to be broken. But two, attention, if we go back to attention, in the past, if Jason and the Jovins went off for two years, I'd have a sense of anticipation. Like, what's he going to come back with? I can't wait for that new record. I'm going to be waiting, counting down the days when that album drops. That's my moment. Now, I think you're on holiday. There's going to be 200,000 unique songs onboarded onto streaming services next week. 200,000. All competing for the attention of the 200,000 that was onboarded this week. You think I'm going to wait two years for Jason to come back and talk to me? (laughs) <laughs> Those days are gone, but we still seem to think that matters. Yes. So, A, more communication between artists and fan, direct communication. I've heard many artists say, I value the comments on YouTube more than the royalties on Spotify. We have to mm. think about what the artists are saying there. Mm. Uh, B, more direct compensation. Patreon models I think are going to just keep on growing and growing and growing. And then C, uh, more lessons need to be learned from the gaming sector, which after all, if you want to dismiss it, you're dismissing a your business, which did more business in the month of March than our business did in the whole of last year, but more lessons in terms of when the monetization process starts. I think you know, by 2030, I'd hope those lessons are learned.
0: Mm-hmm. Do you think a public intellectual property stock market would ever be viable on the sort of profitable crowdfunding front?
1: Possibly. I The way I would carve out an answer there is I find it strange that the market for investing in creativity is so confined to a few key players. You know, why is it, I need to get a record deal and Chaz will usually think of three numbers in this address book that I need to call. Three, why isn't it 30,000, mm-hmm. you know? So I, I, I do think that is an interesting way of thinking about the finance question. I need money. Why should it be three major labels and a bunch of you know, serious indies that could provide money? Why can't it be anyone? So opening up the market for finance it has definite potential, how it's done, uh is open to debate but i would definitely agree that you know finance could be a lot more innovative in the business mm. it could come from a lot more different angles and the cross-pollination of media if music can help sell games maybe the financially come from gaming companies you know you should be thinking across the column it's not down them
0: mm. yeah makes sense well uh there's so much we could talk about. There's, uh, for the listeners, there's a Billboard piece, another one that we'll be publishing, I think it's today, uh, about uh, the UK market. Do you want to hint at that at all, Will, or should we just let that be a point of s-
1: s- Well, yeah, I- I'll tell you what I want to do, um, which will tee the article up, which is we have a crisis on our hands just now in the music business. We have a crisis... And at all levels, but if we just restrict it and blinker it down to music, as rude as that will sound to people who have been through hell over the past three months, um, we've got a crisis in that for most artists, and you should never generalize artists, the vast majority, 80% of their income is coming from live. Mm -hmm. And unless nobody has noticed, there ain't going to be any live industry this year, and it's going to be very messed up next year. So what this new piece of work does, and it really, if I use the word groundbreaking, I don't want to sound like bragging rights or some tosser who's just boasting about their own work, but I want to say <laughs> thank you to the PRS for Music, the collecting side of here in the UK for helping me do this. What I've been able to do for the first time ever is actually understand the live music business. How much is it worth? What that matters, why that matters, is because if we knew how much it was worth last year, we know how much we're losing this year. Mm. So, this piece is really going to be a reach out. It's going to be UK centric. Mm. So, you know, apologies to people outside of Britain, but it's extremely applicable, which is we can now start to have a coherent conversation about what matters most, which is how on earth are artists supposed to survive? This is not like hysteria headline time. This is a real question. How are they actually supposed to survive? You can't go and dine tables because you can't tour, because those restaurants aren't open either. It's, It goes right to the heart of the matter. And hopefully when this article uh, kicks out, the conversation will get deeper and deeper. And I'd love to come back and help you guys at Chartmetric discuss
0: it on another higher level. We'd love to. We now have that on record for episode two with Will Page. (laughs) Will, uh, I want to thank you so much for chatting with us today. Um, We're really looking forward to Pivot coming out pretty soon and, and reading more. About the work uh, now that you're doing uh, with all I these different projects that you're involved two in. Two
1: weeks from my manuscript deadline, so I'm up against it. But we're we're getting there.
0: Oh God, we'll let you do it then to get that editing done. Um, Will is there a way for people to contact you if they want to get in touch at all after uh, all this discussion that we've had?
1: Uh, whilst writing the manuscript, the answer is no. Do not disturb. it's clearly in effect. But when it's done, I'll be back up there and we'll get you the details that way.
0: Sounds great. Uh, yeah, LinkedIn,
1: uh, LinkedIn is the, the channel I choose for sort of social communication. So hit me up on LinkedIn if I can help in any way.
0: Perfect. All right. Thanks, Will. Uh, How Music Charts is written and produced by Jason Hovind and Rucker Rosen for the Chartmetric. Special thanks to Will Page and Chaz for tuning in. Free chart metric accounts are available at chartmetric.com. And article links and show notes are at podcast.chartmetric.com. That's it for Season 2, Episode 16 of How Music Charts. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you soon. Thank you again to Mr. Will Page.